Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. Kevin Fleming. He's the founder of Gray Matters International, a unique consultancy that leverages neuroscience innovations to work on the problems of behavioral change. His work has been featured in some of the top media outlets, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. His clients have included NFL players, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, tons of entrepreneurs, and Fortune 100 execs seeking brain-challenging solutions to their double-binded life of pursuing happiness and success at the same time. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, Kevin, as well. We'll just call this Kevin Squared, I guess, right? You know, the power of Kevin Squared, right? I like it. I, I like it. Um, <laughs> so maybe before we get into all the stuff that we're going to cover today, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. No worries. Um, I am a uh, East Coaster. So, okay. Very cool. Uh, they're, they're they affectionately call me a masshole because I'm from <laughs> Massachusetts, which I don't know if I agree with that, especially with the Red Sox in the playoffs. We're really good good people here. Anyways, um, yeah, Western Mass, actually, about an hour or two uh, uh, west of Boston, so more in the Berkshire kind of area, nice, more of a country-ish kind of part of the state, um, a little town called Longmeadow out there. So that's, I loved it. I mean, it was a great childhood, uh, good friendships, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, kind of idyllic, I guess, in some ways, you know, the Puritan house, the white fence, the big green lawn kind of thing, and, and uh, good, good family. So yeah, not much to complain about. I'm a lucky guy. Interesting. So walk me through kind of your university career. What did you take in university and why? So that's a good question. So um, this is a funny story. In fact, I was just telling my uh, son nice. uh, about this story the other day because he's a sophomore at the, the University of Notre Dame, okay. which is where I went to school Very and cool. uh, started my academic career. Yeah. So I went in actually um, as, a, uh, as an architecture major. So and this was really okay. funny because... I had this artistic kind of right brain, spatial relations kind of artisty part in me, but I had this really kind of analytical science-based kind of part of me as well. So I really thought it was an integrative left-right kind of way to do, uh, you know, a good academic training and something that was enjoyable. And, and But little did I know that that was more of my own theoretical understanding of architecture. I went into this classroom and I remembered I, it was one of these, back in, this was early 90s, right? So sure. this was... Uh, um, you know, back to four PowerPoints and such. I, I, it was still, I think, as I recall, a good old over, you know, projector. What do you call it? The over yeah. transparency. Yeah. What do you call oh, it? I'm oh, blanking on yeah, it. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know those little projectors, and they just kind of slap those little clear transparent things on there. Uh, anyways, and so they had, say, in this big lecture hall, they put this big picture of, or they pick, took one of my, it was my sample of this um, uh, house, or this uh, building on the campus that we all drew, and it was mine being featured, and I was like, oh, wow, this is great. You know, they're putting mine in the center of this class. Sure. You know, they're going to talk about how, how this is a perfect example of people's, you know, or someone with great talent and all this sort of narcissism <laughs> that spilling, spilling from me internally, you know. And, and so, of course, sure enough, it was the exact opposite. So when I got into this lecture hall, the guy just rips to shreds my, <laughs> my drawing. And it basically then also says this is an example of the opposite of someone who has complete 
lack of talent, who may not really understand anything um, cerebral around this architect. Now, this is crazy because this, sure. I was just starting out as a freshman. I don't know how I was supposed to know it. But I, and it was probably just a test to see how bad I wanted to you know, stay in this field. And so I ended up just kind of uh, turning uh, my chicken crap into chicken salad, and I decided to uh, just stand up, raise my hand, look everybody in the audience. So they kind of turned the turned the embarrassment into kind of an actual show. <laughs> Waved my hand and and then I pranced my way out of the lecture hall and then I immediately went over to freshman year studies and uh, signed over to music and I was a music major for, or not not really a, I'm a musician on the side singer songwriter studio drummer guitarist I do a whole bunch of recordings for different kind of projects in Austin in the past and Nashville and L A and all that. And it's been great. It's been another part of me. It's like an alter ego that I think really defines kind of, I can really connect and dock between that music part of me and my current life. Sure. Um, so I really thought, you know, hey, maybe I'll just have the the cojones to get out there and just be a musician and just, you know, just go back to something that's not so cerebral. I can just actually do my passion of music. And what I ended up finding was because I had such a great um, music program back in Western Mass. It's, a, in fact, one of the people I think on The Voice just one was a student at um, our music program in, in, uh, in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Yeah, I think it was The Voice, or maybe it was American Idol, one of those two programs. Um, we, we had like a Grammy, you know, given to us for like best music education program or something like that. It was, like, it was really, it's a really great, great program. Uh, in fact, one of my uh, classmates from when I was in there was, is uh, Aaron Lewis, who was the lead singer for the group Stain. Cool. Also came from our high school. Anyways, um, so I just thought, hey, I had this great music training. I'm just going to go to be a music guy at Notre Dame. And that I ended up being bored. I ended up actually finding out that that wasn't really my – I didn't want to necessarily study, per se, um, music. I think I just wanted to play it, right? Yeah, so enough. I ended up kind of – so the real kind of kicker of my academic um, launch off there at Notre Dame was stumbling upon a guy who uh, – Professor George Howard. I'm so grateful to him. He was this psychologist in the psych department. And they had to teach a class, or they had to, everybody in the liberal arts kind of field or uh, area of study had to take this great books type class. Okay. And what happened was you would study literature from the perspective of the person that was teaching teaching the class. So you'd have engineers teaching it, you'd have anthropologists, you'd have psychologists, yeah, teaching from this, you know, and everybody giving a different perspective. So I had this psychologist teaching it. And it was such a mind blowing kind of experience. Not only did I have, a wonderful time with him. I had more of a um, kind of uh, Tuesdays with Maury kind of experience. I don't know if you remember that book that came out. Sure, he yeah, was, yeah. Just like a, you know, just that protege kind of like he was my mentor. I was his student, and we just became friends as well because he was so damn bright. And the coolest part that I think also links to my current work, he was hanging out on the tail end of the bell curve all the time. Okay. So he was definitely a genius on stat- statistics and qualitative and quantitative research and methods and all that. But he was always challenging assumptions of reality. He was always comfortable with just saying, sure, this is how psychology has done the science for hundreds of years, but let's uh, challenge it because do they even have the right assumption on this? And he was a philosopher of science, basically. And he was so talented. So, he, yeah, he was able to give me right out of the gate, which usually you don't get. So right when you're finding your academic studies, you're typically stumbling into you know, some kind of direct correlation of I like this and I want to be this job. And so that this is the training I get to be a lawyer. This is the training I get to be a doctor. I got such a specialized launching pad uh, when I was 19 years old where I got both ends. I got the basic skills and then I got this high level 
meta-level kind of ontology challenging kind of dialogue around what was right and wrong with thinking itself inside the field of psychology. And I could connect these two with just so much excitement. I was connecting these two poles with like, holy crap. I mean, I have the basic skills, but I also have this ability almost through this relationship with this guy to challenge so much of what we think is true. And yeah, it was really cool. So in that sort of two, three years of, of, uh, of doing this work, um, you know, we came in really close. I learned a lot of his models and, and what I realized come senior year when I was all done, and of course I obviously declared psychology as a major, and um, I did a whole bunch of, um, you know, applying to grad schools. There's not much you can do with a psych degree really without you know, going, you know, next level professional training. Sure. So I, I applied to different uh, clinical, clinical psych programs and such, and um, I didn't get in anywhere. Okay, interesting. So that was interesting, too. I was rejected everywhere, which is very fascinating to me because, again, I was, like, thinking, okay, I'm at a great school. I had a great professor here. He was really, you know, thought I'd have a good shot for whatever reason. Didn't get in anywhere. So then I go back to my music, you know, background. I'm like, oh, I'll just go down to Nashville with my buddy, and we'll just kind of – I'll get, I'll do some studio gigs as a drummer, and I'll just kind of go that road. And um, unbeknownst to me, right on the midnight hour, right before I'm packing the U-Haul to go down to Nashville – I get a phone call from this guy, George, who says, hey, listen, would you like to be my student to get a uh, PhD under me? And I said, wow, I mean, that's a that's an interesting phone call to get. And, and he said, yeah, he says, you know, I'm, I just know your brain. Like, and I know the reason why you haven't gotten in anywhere is because no one's thinking this way and they're not going to understand that. And and so I want to let you know that I believe in you so much so that I'm going to grab these grants from these divisions that I'm a president of at the APA, and um, I'm going to uh, fund your master's and PhD. Wow, so that's really cool. Nerd, nerd. Yeah, it was really cool, man. And so I was just blessed. You know, I just I said, absolutely, hold the presses, turn everything around. And within a couple of weeks, I was back at Notre Dame as a student, uh, as a master's and PhD student. And uh, so, yeah, it was a, a heck of a road. But I tell you, I, to this day, um, that meeting of George not only opened up the doors, but I can see the philosophical ten- tenets underneath what I'm doing now and why I feel so comfortable challenging uh, things like I do now. It really goes back to then. Interesting. So walk me through kind of getting out of university up until kind of Gray Matters International. Yeah. So basically what I ended up doing was I, uh, I obviously got my master's PhD from Notre Dame, did yep. some pre-doc. Uh, what they call a pre-doctoral internship uh, in clinical psych, which is where you go to another university and usually work right. either at a university counseling center or a VA hospital when you get basically your field experience, right? And yeah. so you get all your supervision hours and such. And so I did that at Purdue. Uh, stayed in Indiana a little longer and went down to Lafayette and had a wonderful time down there. And the staff was great. Nice. Uh, just very, very fond. They were very fond of growing your creative spirit, not just being a therapist 24 seven. They really watched people's eccentric personalities and grew them. And I really felt validated by those guys. Cause again, really, really comfortable with me being me, you know, and sure. again, I already had this feeling based, you know, as you heard my story here so far, it's already had this feeling that I was kind of a little different sure. than the traditional kind of, you know, research mind of psychology that I was meeting. And cause I was at the, you gotta remember, I was at the bars in graduate school playing guitar on Friday. Right, 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 I was right. not, I was not in the research lab pumping out numbers. <laughs> doing statistical analyses I should have been but I was uh I lived a balanced life even then like I just was like I know and everyone gave me crap for being you know maybe looking like a not so professional student but it was actually the best thing I ever did I kept my passions alive I put psychology in its proper place which was a very good field 
to have, you know, that could teach a certain amount of truth. And I let it just be and sit right there in those parameters. Like I didn't let it consume me. I didn't let my work consume me. And of course, in this interview, we'll probably get back to that tenant a lot with the clients I work with now. Right. But um, yeah, I left Purdue and uh, for a year, came back to Notre Dame, got my degrees, walked through the ceremony. And then uh, I grabbed a a postdoc year at the university of Wyoming uh, in uh, kind of more of a, what they call rural psychology and behavioral medicine training. So we would be paired up with medical residents in their me- in their uh, medical program, and we would do um, work, uh, you know, in a frontier environment. That was fun because we got to really learn a collaborative care kind of model of helping people. Um, and then I decided to get into right into um, clinical work. I was uh, started as a clinician. In the in Jersey okay. uh, with a great little, little practice out on the Jersey Shore in, in neuropsych, and so that's where I started really getting the initial training in testing and assessment and uh, um, and, and using kind of the neuropsych tools for cognitive and brain rehabilitation. Okay. So these would be people who had you know uh, a cardiovascular accident or a motor vehicle accident or some type of a brain injury. And the neurologist, or the primary care physician, knew something was up, and they needed to get a formal assessment of what type of the brain, what part of the brain was injured, you know, and is that level of impairment, you know, clinically significant, or is it, you know, uh, something that is minor? And then from there, you develop a treatment plan to rehab it. Now, back then, you know, this was the late '90s, early right, turning into the, you know, the 21st century. There, it was really old school kind of ways of doing it, paper and pencil tests sure. and stuff, and something they would call the Halstead right-hand uh, neuropsych battery. And so we were good at um, what I ended up calling later in my career, kind of describing the water to people while they drowned and calling that success. We were good at kind of, you know, localizing impairment, but I didn't think at the time, and maybe it's just me not being that good of a shrink, but I, I, didn't, I didn't think that we were good in, in or that good in, in really innovative methods because I don't think they were around either that much. You know, it was we were doing a lot of um, – Almost like I remember at this practice, we had actually a school teacher that was coming in and doing exercises with our brain injured folks to, you know, practice new ways of, we now know as neuroplasticity, right? Prompting mm-hmm. the brain to heal itself. We, it was a school teacher that we, and she was amazing. She would just come up with all these creative ways to retrain the brain to relearn things that were not going so well. And repetition is a big part of neuroplasticity, right? So we were just doing it the hard way back then. And that was great. Um, but the real kicker was uh, I ended up leaving that practice and um, with an offer from my um, former Purdue head who was starting a company with his colleague that was a behavioral medicine company. And what was neat about what these guys were doing was it was a startup for hooking up um, with self-insured entities and seeing if their behavioral medicine models could assist with driving down the healthcare premiums of these chronically ill employees. So the high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, asthma, were their four areas. Sure. These people, because they're not managing their illness so well, cost these self-insured companies a lot of money. Sure. So we started, or they, these guys started the company. They needed the director training. I popped in uh, on the ground floor. And it was just, it was funny how excited I was back then. Like someone else would be like, wait a minute, Kevin, you just started your clinical career. Like establish, establish, work your way up your ladder. I mean, I, I even think this person wanted to eventually turn the practice over to me and I just kind of bailed and I just loved the idea of creating, not just, not just doing therapy. Like I wanted to be creating a lot. And, um, 
this was a tabula rasa kind of gig. This is a, um, here's a blank piece of paper. Come up with the ways to get these people to change, you know, because initially these guys say, oh, you guys just you know, just use those clinical psych model stuff, all that crap that you guys learned. Just, you know, just kind of take it out there to the, and teach it to companies. That's all right. you got to do. And I'm like, well, I, I don't, you know, I think so because, you know, one of our clients was a bunch of truck drivers, you know, like, sure. good luck teaching therapy to a truck driver. You know what I mean? Interesting. Um, sure. You, you got to be very mindful of the culture of these people and what their decision-making challenges are, you know? Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a heck of a fun gig because I, I got to create an intellectual property for the first time in my life, you know, like what that was like, you know, to, to kind of say, all right, what's our model and how are we going to roll this out? And let's, who are we going to hire to train and who are the best people to deliver these interventions? I'm like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was great. So it really gave me the entrepreneurial background, the entrepreneurial spirit to say, yeah, a shrink doesn't have to be sitting in an office all day. You can get out in the world and really link this, these, these, you know, models of thought to uh, actual bottom line. That was a really big eye-opening thing for me because I really love the challenge. Sure. I like the idea of saying you can be, liked by a client you can have a nice conversation you can have some validation you can have even some symptomatic relief here and there but you know what that could be a necessary but not sufficient condition to change if the person doesn't use their inhaler like they should be and stay out of the emergency room like it was like all of a sudden it was his first time you know cognitively where i was like oh wow there's two big different ways to look at this and yes is it great to sync them up when you can in the ideal but I really like this sort of secondary bottom line way because not many people walk into therapy and say, um, you need to radically change my life or I'm not coming back next week. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, it just didn't happen that way. I mean, people just keep coming back. And there was this, this one, uh, this is an aside. I remember watching sure. this one Curb Your Enthusiasm episode you know, with Larry David that was just hilarious where he was going to this like, therapist. And it was this sort of like, he basically was trying to give the therapist permission to not make an appointment next week with him. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, and of course it was, it was this, it it was a fun kind of dialogue to watch because there wasn't very, you know, easy, clear moments because the therapist is thinking, you know, you're always working on your stuff. You should be processing. And he's thinking, well, maybe, you know, based on his neurosis that I should keep coming back. And you have this sort of like cyclical kind of diffusion of boundaries that was going on and this ambivalence. And it was like, you know, and at one point, Larry's like, well, you know, uh, you don't have to make the appointment with me next week if you don't want to. Like, I'm, and it was just, it was so strange. But I remember watching that thinking that's kind of what sometimes happens. And, sure. But when you're in these kind of like business type settings, they don't have time for those type of dialogues. It's just, here's the bottom line. Here's what we need to happen. And so I ended up kind of, when I was going through that part with that startup company, um, really loving it and also getting kind of in you know, impromptu nods on the shoulder from these clients that we're working with and such Just like, Hey, you know, you've heard of coaching or executive coaching, or maybe you can help me with this kind of piece in my life on the side. And like, it, I, I was falling into the coaching world and I didn't realize it because at the time it was still kind of relatively new. Sure. Um, but I, again, I was going back to that kind of experience at Notre Dame early on. I was just kind of realizing, I think I like being kind of out on these fringes of doing work that is very different than just, um, you know, psychotherapy. So eventually I ended up uh, taking a leap from that company and saying, I'm going to go on my own and, and starting Gray Matters International. And so that's really kind of where we are now. And fast forward, I've been doing Gray Matters for, you know, gosh, uh, what is it now? Is it, yeah, probably over, you know, probably 10 to 10 to 12 years right now. Sure, and so that's great, man. Um, it's been a heck of a fun ride. And what we do now these days is, 
my company really is looking at kind of pieces of all of those, you know, that picture I just created with the, the story of my academic and professional life. I put them all together basically now, you know, it's, it's this sort of absolutely components for my clinical psych background in terms of uh, relationship building and all the training that you have in terms of being really good listener and really understanding what the message underneath the message is that people are trying to communicate. That's always a, a foundational piece. And then what we've done is we've really kind of built in now through all the research, you know, that's developed, we're building in a lot more neuroeconomic and neuroscience-based ways of looking at decision-making issues that people have. And there is really a gray area now, and that's where we got the name Gray Matters. There's a gray area between, um, you know, what's psychopathology and what's eccentricity. You know, what is, you know, something that is absolutely a psychiatric process, you know, something gone wrong in the brain and or disease state. And what is uh, a mere, you know, what Dan Ariely would say in his book, Predictably Irrational. You know, what is just a predictably irrational kind of part of our own fundamental decision-making process? that we have to learn to get humble with and understand. And there may be very odd ways of going around those problems in sure. our life um, that may not need medicine, that may not need uh, years of therapy. They, again, I, I got to make this caveat very clear. You know, there's definitely a, a fit for some people, some of the time for some of the issues that people are struggling with in their life. Absolutely. My whole reason for starting Gray Matters was not to make any anti-claim against that, those models, but really more to just say, What's an alternative? Sure. What's an alternative for this sort of little section of the bell curve where people may not fit in that either by choice or based on what we call iotrogenic trauma. They've had um, potential problems with help, help, helping models or that and, and their pain hasn't you know, been taken away and they need to look somewhere else. Uh, that's really the sweet spot. And of course, we can get into on this call kind of who we're working with. But that's kind of the overview of what I'm doing now. Sure. No, that's that's very cool. And you said something to me in one of our previous kind of calls that I've kind of thought about a lot lately. Everybody talks about like, oh, you need this kind of like work-life balance. But to me, they're kind of the same thing, right? It doesn't really exist, right? And I, I want, well, at least in my opinion. Um, so do you want to maybe yeah. talk about kind of how you work with people professionally and personally? Because like I just said, I think they kind of overlap, right? And I think... Sometimes you have problems in one that cause issues in the other, right? Or vice versa. And, you know, so like, I just think that now that we're kind of always connected and always kind of on or kind of on call, walk me through kind of how yeah. you kind of work with people to kind of sort out, you know, whatever they're dealing with, good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And I, I have to agree with you. I remember that time we were chatting on that. And yeah, the work-life balance, not a wrong phrase, just brings up some inaccurate perceptions as if it's sort of this actual sure. hard line in the sand. And I'm going to sit on work side and I'm going to walk over here and here's my life side. It's like, I don't know about yeah, you, yeah. but my work's part of my life. Like that's kind yep. of, and my life's part of my work. Like, and that's what we're seeing now with, you know, corporate change consultants and culture building guys and gals who are going on to the companies. They're realizing, especially these new generations of employees, they're just going to be like, Hey, listen, I'm not separating this in some yeah. artificial line in the sand. I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring my life to work and the best of me to work. And I'm probably going to be bringing my home and my work into my life. And not because I want to blow over my home life, but because we do live in a boundary yep. challenged world now. Right. And so there, so this idea of balance to me is, is an ongoing evolutionary kind of discussion that is ever changing and that's good. And if, if you don't watch it though, you can get swept up in sure. the undercurrent of this too. And that's those, those are the people that kind of wash up on the shore of gray matters. <laughs> um, 
these are people who haven't kind of dealt with this sort of fluidity of these two terms really well. And whether it's pre-existing trauma or addictions or this thing that I know you and I've talked about, this yeah, success yeah. versus happiness kind of dilemma. Well, I think it leads these, to that, right? Right. These seem to be the big... that's what we're all trying to... Well, like, well that's basically what we're all trying to be is find our version of happiness. Whatever that means, it's different to everybody. Fair? Yeah, absolutely, man. And and I and I and I sure. obviously we have different values yeah. and different roads into those things. But at the end of the day, let's you know, and the neurobiologists, you know, and other people would probably say, hey, listen, at some level, if you open up the brain deep enough, and you know, you avoid pain, you know, mm-hmm. and grow pleasure. At some point, there's that kind of like neural law. And then, of course, you have these, you know, altruistic-minded folks that say, well, yeah, there's transcendent, transcendental kind of values that we that are driving us to to make decisions of that matter, and maybe not necessarily this linear cost-benefit kind of analysis yeah. that goes through things. And that's why the rise of uh, behavioral economics sure. has been so big now in our world is because we've shown that it isn't this utility-functioning kind of like cost-benefit analysis literally that's going on of maximizing and minimizing, and these it, it just doesn't happen necessarily that way that that it, it, you know we're, we're really kind of going through this really interesting maze of forces that are influencing why we what we do yeah. and it isn't linear it isn't necessarily traditional economic thinking at play in our brain so yeah so in our, our company to kind of go back to that success versus happiness dilemma that i see it is probably the sure. overarching umbrella right it's kind of the the thing that subsumes a lot of the quote-unquote problems that walk into my office, so to speak. But um, yeah, I would say the sweet spot of what we do is to help people understand the neural kind of properties that are at play when you're dancing with these two constructs. In other words, if you don't watch it, you know, know, what are that that neuroplasticity law, you know, neurons that wire together, fire together, you know, watch it, you're going to be perfectly practicing your problem making as much as you're perfectly practicing your solution. If, but you know, we can end up solving the wrong problem really well if we don't watch sure. it, right? And so we end up building these compulsive networks that will definitely get us kind of to be a type A person and get us to make our bed in the morning and make sure we do our workout and make sure we get our coffee and da 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 But it's also going to have a lot of inadvertent consequences sure. as well. And so those are the kind of these kind of hidden kind of secondary consequences that are what we're about because – and we'll take in a lot of executive uh, clients that are struggling with stress burnout. These are things on the piece of paper, so to sure. speak, that you'll see when from a symptomatic side, stress burnout, uh, overworking, uh, addiction kind of or compulsive habit kind of stuff, be it, be it quote unquote good things like exercise gone too strong or wrong or, or alcohol being used too much self-medicatively or, um, you know, you'll definitely see some type of self-regulation sure. kind of challenge, right? Um, and then to, yes, the relational based issues that will develop. If you kind of keep them blowing up internally, your, your spouse or your marriage is going to have a hard time. Your kids are going to get splinters of anger and irritability and reactivity in your house. And, um, you're going to get these kind of like snowballing kind of effects psychologically. And what happens right or wrong is these clients don't feel so comfortable going to, a psychologist every week, mainly because they're just traveling all the time. They're too busy. And and not that those models aren't going to help at times, but they just really need somebody that kind of sees the uniqueness of their brain. And this is the, this is the gray area again. How do you teach and and, and coach and and influence through research and technology, 
the the actual uniquenesses of how they're wired. How where's that? And then where's the narcissistic sort of pieces that kind of are blocking yeah, their awareness that they may be more universal, <laughs> more universal than they think, right? That's you know, we see that a lot in these luxury rehabs that I used to kind of consult for a lot, and uh, you know you see this sort of like oh these hundred thousand dollar sure. a month kind of operations that can be. You definitely may be catering towards this second thing I just mentioned, more of that kind of like, I'm so different, so give me a special program. That will always be a challenge for Gray Matters because that people do find me out because of that door. They do think it's that unique and different, which and it is. Um, but I'm also, and clients will tell you who work with me, I'm also, I kick your ass in terms of uh, I get to the truth pretty quick. Um, I'm going to really help because of, of my love for what I do and, and for the love of change itself. I'm going to challenge probably way more than most people in the mental health field is going to do. Not because they're not skilled or trained, um, but because I've kind of moved my company and my approach into this sort of stratosphere that is real so, it's so customized, sure. I feel there's a lot more freedom. There's a lot more autonomy to pull in some really powerful thinking, and people trust that. They're right. They come to you and they really say, I like this model. Let's get together on a private intensive kind of model. Come to me where I am. I got three, four days I can take off. You bring this sort of TED Talk-like, you know, model of thinking to my living room. Help me with my marriage. Help me with my brain. Help me figure out what's wrong with my team that I'm trying to build. Try to get me balanced again, harmonized. Get me in peace. Get me focused. So it's kind of this sort of shot in the vein immersion experience where I try to take tons of my training and experience uh, and, and some of these new renegade approaches and wrap it up into a training well, and it, plan. It sounds like tailored to me. Instead yeah. of kind of like, here's this yeah. workbook that we're just going to go through, right? Like, and I'm not saying that's necessarily bad because that could work for yeah. some people. Sometimes that doesn't work, right? And I think having something where here's my issues, let's work on these things, right? I, I think for me anyway, it doesn't really matter what vertical it's in as long as you can help me, right? I think that's what people want is they don't care what type of I, kind I of – so. Yeah. vertical that the information comes from or whatever. It's if you can figure out how to get through to me and fix kind of what I need fixing, then that's where the real power is, right? I think so. You know, I, this this is interesting you said that because it makes me think of somewhere I read um, this phrase and I can't give sure. you the exact source of who said it, but it was, it was somebody in the neuroscience field, almost a neurophilosophical tenant. They were trying to do this article argument or this, paper that was talking about whether we have free will or not, you know, whether we are truly deciding because there was this, this experiment done years ago that was, they were claiming that, you know, there's like about two to 400 milliseconds before you are actually aware of making a conscious choice. There is the signal tree going on that is indicating the brain is making some type of push or physiological impulse towards a direction before you're consciously aware of what you're saying you're deciding. And if that's the case, these, these people were saying, hey, listen, maybe we, maybe there is no free will, that we're, this is a deterministic, mechanistic kind of world we're living in, and we just don't have rational thinking, we have rationalization power, this is what we really have, kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, but then there's this one philosopher that was, or a philosophical person that was saying, well, maybe it's not either or, maybe it's not an issue of whether we have free will, it's, maybe it's more in practice, Interesting. free won't. And I love that because what he was kind of saying was based on how the brain is wired and what it's doing in terms of pushing and impulse and desire making that your evidence of free will is in sure. the censoring of certain things, right? 
is in the that is the evidence of free will is to modulate and to redirect into and but it is more in that direction of yeah free won't and and I say that story because that's kind of how I see people coming in and it's what you're saying is they know they people know yeah. more what they don't want or what they won't go with what they and they are kind of already censoring these options because they know darn well and they xed out and I and I think they're very these kind of xing out of characteristics of what they're looking for are very very a lot more powerful in, sure. in in why we do what we do and sometimes we're left with a defaulty kind of way of looking at life that we have to figure out okay just because we don't want this does yeah, that mean we then want this yeah, this pile of stuff and so what I have to do with my clients is I actually think those negative reversal kind of characteristics of what they don't want are really what brings them to me they know they don't want to talk in therapy all the time they don't want to feel like they're whining all the time. They know they, they don't want just our sessions here and there. They don't want to just, you know, feel like someone is just validating and not necessarily leading them for first to second order change around something, you know, list goes on. So then they go, doc, what do you got? All right. Show me. Yeah. And, and then at that point, that's where the work begins because as I said, there's a lot of different types of motivations for stumbling into my work. I have to clean up a lot of those people that come in and say, all right, I, you know, I can definitely help you. But remember, if I do my work really well and you are really wanting to be in this arena, that may mean helping you have the right type of problem. Yeah, interesting. And so, so you know, if you say help equals give me a magic pill and poof, I'm dancing and, you know, and skipping in daisies, I'm not going to agree to that. Sure. But if you say help me and I'm ready because I'm ready to shift my world from a certain way of understanding, from a certain deck chair shifting on the Titanic kind of way of life, Guess what? If I'm going to actually change that type of change, I'm changing change itself. I'm changing assumptions. And there's going to be a huge hiccup as that sort of titanic plate sure. moves, you know, um, and you have to be willing to have those right type of problems. So you wrote a book a, a while ago. What exactly did you write the book about and, and what was the reason you decided to finally put out a book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I shamefully, I admit I wrote the book before I knew what I wanted to say. Isn't that horrible? Um <laughs> Uh, it, it was, it, yeah, it was one of these, and every author knows that there's these times where you just kind of have so many cool ideas spinning around and you just vomit it on a page, you know? Sure. And it was one of these books that if I could do again, I would harness and redo and retalk it and rework it. And, um, and so what came out was some interesting models of thought around this idea of a half truth, right? So that was, okay. that's really the tenet of the book. And it divides, the book's div divided in sort of a psychology or self-help kind of world view of looking at what are half truths inside that world, um, inside business in terms of development, coaching, leadership, all that performance. And then the last part, I took a stab at uh, looking at sort of some half-truths of sort of um, religion and spirituality. And, and so it was a very much of a, talk about a big topic yep. to kind of take on. I decided to just do this book in, you know, three areas, because it was really where my heart was at the time. You know, I, was, I think it came out um, gosh, early, like 2007 or 2000, somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just starting my family life. I'm, I'm, I'm challenging everything that I thought I knew. And I realized, wow, maybe all I am is just a great, you know, packaged up version of a bunch of half truths, you know? <laughs> sure. And, and so I started kind of really getting into this, this interest. Now there's a lot more research on it, but in, 10 years ago, it was kind of new this, this idea of, critiquing more of the mechanisms of my own self-deception, you know, where, where, as you become rewarded as an expert, where can you get, where, how do I say this? Because of your rewarding as an expert, you better watch out for certain things is, is the point of my whole point of that book 
which is if we if we don't monitor things like humility, things like virtue, and include these things inside our own self-challenge, we can really go with door number two kind of ways of living life. And clients can easily come in and say, you're the best thing since sliced bread, and they can be doing that for the wrong reason. Yeah, so I started basically looking at my life saying, how am I doing the same thing? How am I doing all the right things for the wrong reason? And that was a whole nother level of kicking tires sure. that I didn't really feel like I got good training in because we're really about, you know, stimulus response, stimulus response kind of models of training and teaching, which is here's what we got to do. Do it, perform it well, study well, get an A and move on. You know, that's how we, that's how we do kids now. And that's why there's an interesting study out on valedictorians. They, they actually don't do as good in life as you think, because what have they actually practiced? They practice more of the machinery. Uh, they practice the input output system of what, and they do it right. They do it great. But it's the people that are the, a little more messier, that are a little more on the bell curve, that are a little more, that actually may do better in life in the final analysis of these variables that matter about wellness and, and, and success and, you know, well-being and good relationships and emotional intelligence. It isn't the stimulus response kind of spit out. So the, so the book was really around what if we kind of pushed these three areas of, of thought into that realm where we looked at itself a bit more critically, where we looked at psychology and self-help that way and business development and, and even dare I say religion, which was at the time, you know, we had a lot more of, you know, the Islamic culture challenges were going on. It was pre nine 11 and we were growing and with a lot more tensions in the middle East. And um, it was you know, a lot of questions of who's right, who's wrong, all this stuff happening. And it was, I started realizing that maybe we're, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe it's about, how, regardless of what your ontology is, your belief system, how can you make your own thinking inside wrong, or at least inaccurate and not complete? And the big piece of the book was all around, there is a difference between discerning things that are good and bad. When you get into things where you have to get into deciding now between what's important and what is essential, wow, that bandwidth will invite as much beauty as challenge. And if you're not really good at thinking itself, we see this now with the Kavanaugh hearings that are going on in the Supreme Court kind of process where it's very challenging to go through both sides of this thing. And I realized, you know, it's not an issue of right or wrong as much as where are the assumptions and where are the intent behind what we're doing? How do we now analyze those deeper type of under the radar motivations and desires, those are very challenging to do, but they may hold more of the truth of the pudding, regardless on what side of the fence you're on. And so that's really what Half Truth High was all about. You recently got involved with kind of the CBS talk show, Face the Truth. What exactly are you doing with that? And how did that come to be? Yeah, it was a really interesting offer of uh, uh, basically being on their radar for, um, I guess, particular okay. guests that get on their show. And it's fun because this is a this is a show, as I, as I understand, um, they can, you can do more fact-checking on it, but I believe what was told me by the producer was it's, I guess, a new show that's launched that's uh, from the producers of the Dr. Phil and the Doctors uh, shows. Um, so it's kind of nice, but it has some sure. yeah, it's good street cred to it. And um, But, yeah, they were looking at um, an expert or a, you know, a company or a practice to uh, refer guests to um, okay. afterwards that they could continue their work and uh, as part of their you know, kind of my relationship with them. And so I was, there was a, uh, a guest that was um, offered to work with me. And so that was how I got on the radar. And um, yeah, I'm very, very blessed to have that opportunity because they're good people over there and, and uh, really enjoyed at least getting, getting some, uh, 
getting some spotlight on, on me and my work. Sure. No, that's great, man. So walk me through, you contribute to the Huffington Post. What types of stuff do you kind of write for them in the past and, and kind of will be in the future? Yeah, I've actually, um, gosh, I paused a bit of my writing on it, but I, it, and only because my travels have been so crazy recently. But yeah, I was definitely, I, was, I, was, I you know, got a column in there and and I haven't written in a while, but my, the, 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 the stuff that I've done that I really am proud of has to do kind of similar to what we're talking about, where we can take a current event or a certain issue and culture and uh, analyze it from a wildly different perspective, you know, in terms of uh, cognitive neuroscience. It's usually the big, you know, kind of lens that I'm using. And for instance, uh, there, you know, even with politics, I, there was one article I wrote, I, I forget what the actual current vibe was at the time and what the referring event was, but the, uh, the whole claim was, uh, wow, what if the White House had an actual chief neuroscientist officer? <laughs> what if we actually had somebody who wasn't uh, teaching content or, you know, a, specially, a specialty kind of based thing around, um, you know, security and information and press and all the pieces that are traditional departments. But what if you had somebody who was a metacognitive agent who was looking at the assumptions and thinkings behind so yes, it's it's almost like uh, intelligence of intelligence okay. kind of thing. Interesting. Uh, I always I kind of felt that that was what was needed because we all were opening up the, opening up our papers at the time or our tablets now and looking at things going. All right, it's not that things are right or wrong. It's just where are we, where is the thing that that seems to make sense but may not be fully true. Sure. And again, that if we don't watch that, we'll fall into these potholes of things that make sense that maybe make it through you know sixty three percent of the kick, tire kicking. But if we don't keep pushing through to 37, you know, we may be making these errors that are not necessarily, like I said earlier, about wrong or right, but just about stumbling. And the philosophers were good with this, right? That's why they taught philosophy centuries ago was, do we know how to think anymore? Right? Can, are we just so quick in the information passing on the Internet and, and these dings and dongs on our phone? And this goes into a whole other area that I'm interested in with the information glut into our brain where brains can only process a certain amount of of input at a certain time. And it's amazing how little that actually is and how much is actually ignored. And what happens is it fills in the gaps in a post hoc kind of way, in a way where the narrative can make somewhat kind of sense to us. And that's what all we have to do. My point in convincing a human being, as I teach him my clients, it's actually a lower bar than you think. It's a lower bar to get people to at least feel kind of go, oh, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we've all been at these parties where there's pseudo-intellectuals talking about little tidbits and sound bites from their reader, you know, and you just have to weave them all together and you really sound smart. Interesting. Right? Yeah. You know, like in the neuroscience side, I'm not anywhere near a guy who's opening up a brain. Sure. And literally doing neurosurgery. I admit, that's not me. Sure. I'm looking at the cognitive neuroscience self-deceptive kind of parts of thinking itself and how that relates to the pain that comes into my office. But God bless the folks that are opening up and literally doing those. Are, to me, that's that's the true, real neuroscience. Sure, like, interesting. But we don't really have that level of discernment in day-to-day culture and dialogue. You know, we get eight minutes of a sound bite, and if you sound pretty good, they put you on a CNN talk show, and you're an expert. Like, it's like, oh, oh, okay. No, it's, so, it's interesting. <laughs> that, that's all. Yeah, that's, no, fair that's my piece. So <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about the types of clients that you – kind of work or have worked with and who you're looking to kind of continue to work with? Sure. Um, so really, um, the company's kind of divided into two arms, right? In terms of, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, the, there's, there's really these two overarching ways that I work. One, of course, is um, 
from a what we'd say neuro leadership perspective, there's a company gotcha. consulting kind of side, right? So it is kind of sexy now to be at least more interested in the brain as it relates to how we devise sure. training programs, leadership programs, executive development offerings. Um, and we're starting to get more, you know, interested in those gaps between dissemination of information and what people do with it when they get it and does it really transfer learning and, and then the real ultimate test sure. change behavior. Um, what I try to do is kind of be one of these, I don't know, like USB plugins okay. to the operating system uh, of a company's protocols, right? And say, hey, listen, uh, give me your training protocol, your HR manuals, your leadership development ideas, your executive uh, development ideas, and let me kind of comb through it to see what meta-level-based uh, half-truths processing areas that you could be enhancing to ensure that the intention of what you're trying to do with people actually right. comes out on the other side. And again, we're back to the gray matters sure. kind of uh, nomenclature here. What I find when I've done all the corporate consulting and culture change work and all that stuff is there is a little bit of a myopia around how we see myopia around how we see human behavior and we do overly rely on the rational data model of if clients say this or fill in this bubble or press, press this on the computer screen of their assessment, that's what they say. That's where they're at. That's the reality of, of their psychological truth. And it's like, yeah, but maybe and maybe not. There could be tons of reasons that was answered that way. And there may be other factors that would, if I start moving these pieces around, if I take this item down here and move it to the top, right? That's what behavioral economics researchers have done all the time. They've, taken, they've changed sure. how you present data. The same exact questions in different orderings, you get radically different answers. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound 100% valid sure. and reliable yeah. to me. And if that's the case, I'm not quite sure that we're using the best methods to make sure. compensation plans, yeah, decide promotions, uh, how do we incentivize it, how do we rate people as being great leaders, if the methodologies themselves have that much error sure. implicit in them. Um, again, it's that idea of if we can sell in a great pie chart or some output, and we love, and the brain does, loves getting a report, seeing the bottom, bottom line and saying, this is your category, this is your type, this is who you are, this is, and you go, ah, <laughs> Oh, good. Thanks. You know, and I go, uh, and it reduces the dissonance. I argue sure. reduces dissonance more than offers truth. I think the, I think sure. the truth is somewhere in the middle. And you know what? You're right. It ain't easy. And gray matters doesn't have 100% prediction validity. But I am saying at least that I'm offering the right questions to these cultures. And I am helping them look very deeply at, do we really sure. know what our knowing is? <laughs> do we, right? And, and I think that's this sort of like negative space inside the painting of their protocols. It's like, Yes, they yeah, can throw different colors on. You can make your new picture brighter and vivid and more, you know, out there. But are you also looking at the fundamental tenet of negative space inside that, that is definitely critical for your perception of what is? I don't think we look at those factors on a deeper level as much. And that's what Great Matters does for, for companies. On the, pro, on the personal side, you're looking at, um, you know, okay. private life change, right? So these are people who want the alternative mental health model to certain sure. areas of change relationships, stress, burnout, uh, addictive kind of uh, issues in their life, some mood issues, um, sleep repair, um, all, all things that bug us that are under the radar that really we're wanting to get the best practice science models of care. What that 
arm is it's really around devising one-on-one private discrete concierge level services for clients that have the resources to work with me either in a one-time retreat or a three, six months or longer kind of ongoing behavior change process where we'll work with the executive or uh, whoever doesn't have to be an executive, you know, whoever has could be their spouse or their children there. But people that are interested in getting unstuck and not just getting near symptomatic relief, uh, these are people that are serious, seriously looking at change, and uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, basically. <laughs> but our methods are really pretty good. Interesting. So you guys have a bunch of kind of locations all over the place. Do you want to maybe just cover a few of them um, and kind of where you traditionally kind of operate? Yeah, good question. So really, uh, the the you know they're quasi locations, right? I mean, these are sure. these are places I'll I'll go, you know, assuming there's a hotel and a plane that gets there. Gotcha. Um, uh, haven't 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 worked yet on Antarctica yet. So that's our next thing. Um, but, 2019's goal. Yeah, yeah, that's my goal. That's my strategic <laughs> plan. Get a good penguin who's ready to go for me. Um, so yeah, the, the you know there's two locations in the U.S. in terms of kind of corporate, you know, from a you know sure. a tax ID kind of perspective. Uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and Tulsa, Oklahoma are really kind of the two places I'll spend my time during a year okay. working out of where clients will fly to me for those locations, but. I'd have to say the company sort of logistics is really, you know, probably 85 to 90 percent me going to a person. Because, as you know, some of these people have families, they got kid sure. responsibilities, they got company demands. It's a lot easier to bring everything to them. And that, of course, is the model. That's the disruptive technology we're having on everything, right? I mean, right. It's, you know, our car details are done in our driveway, our laundry are, is brought to us at their house. And, and, I'm saying, hey, listen, let's bring best practice neuroscience in the same way. It's sure, people, why not? Right, right where they want it. Yeah, so that's what we're really doing. Okay, very cool. So I'm kind of curious then um, to kind of get your thoughts on kind of a couple last things. I know there's been kind of a huge movement away from like not everything needs kind of drugs, right? And I'm not saying that's mm. – I don't really – not a doctor, but people take these things and, and they're prescribed it potentially for the rest of their life. And that might be yeah. something they need and sometimes might not be something they need at all. Like, what's your kind of thoughts on that? I love that you asked this question because it's an uncomfortable area. Yeah, and very and much it's so. It's even uncomfortable it's to ask it. It is because you've got to be sensitive. And, and if you've ever worked with somebody who's suffered with a vegetative depression that yeah. can't get out of bed, and yeah, they're listening to a bunch sure. of these people telling them that meds are needed. They, you know, they flip me off saying, screw you, because it helped me change, save my life. You sure, know? exactly. So I am very, very, and this is a good question to ask because it allows me to re-tilt the scale here a little bit in our interview so I don't sound like I'm so dismissive of just of, of what we have established because I think that's part of the problem with, hey, the new and fresh thing over here means everything else before is wrong. It's like, no, that's not true. Sure. Um, and so I really want to be be mindful to these populations that are taking psychiatric meds, that are involved with a good chunk of psychotherapy, that have been helped. Um, there is a time and place for it. There are conditions that we've seen in our research that have strong biochemical correlates. And there are still clients that I'll get who I'll say, you know what, I, I'm not going not gonna to work with you. You know, um, I, I, it's, I'm not selling uh, a one-size-fits-all thing. And um, d- am I a lot more... Uh, amenable to a wider range? Absolutely, because I do think we could all be optimized in our functioning. Um, but just because you can be optimized does not mean you're actually going to fix the actual core problem. Sure. See? And that 
And that's misleading marketing. It's misleading advertising if you sell that. And I have to make sure that when people come in and they're saying, you know, that I've got severe, um, you know, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, will you cure me? Will you get rid of this or that? I don't treat, heal, cure, diagnose. That's, sure. Those are things in realms of traditional psychologists who are doing that work. I'm not going to get in those realms. And those are very clear professional boundaries I have to have. Gotcha. And so I don't use it. But can, can you potentially be helped by doing some universal things that optimize chemistry uh, and neurophysiology? It's worth a shot. And as long as, yeah. as long as you're starting with the ending in the beginning and you're very clear about what you do and you don't do, uh, people can be informed and they can make their own choice as consumers to say if they want to do that. Um, and I just think that's really the ethics piece of this work I do. You mu it must be a team play kind of thing. Sure. I must be working with, and I do, I have a bunch of folks who are in those realms that I trust uh, immensely and uh, you need them when you need them. And sure. it's all a judgment call and it's a, it, it, a lot of people have to be but as long as people are communicated with respect and, uh, and things up front, you're good. Makes total sense. But but Kevin, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about Gray Matters and any other links you want to mention, maybe the book as well? Sure. Uh, good. Thank you. Yeah, my this book is uh, Half Truth High. And it's, uh, it came out, as I said, years ago, but it's offered now for free on my, um, on my website. And so people can download that. You also can download... Uh, an Adrian Gostick book. You guys probably know him who listened to the show, one of the best thought leaders out there, uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, Wall Street Journal, best business book kind of guy. I and mean, he's, he, a lot of his stuff has all hit the tops. He was lucky, lucky, or he was uh, kind enough, and I was lucky to be offered a, a, a featured thought leader slot in one of his books called All In cool. that he came out uh, a few years ago. You can get that chapter as well off of online and yeah, you know, you'll just see a bunch of, you'll even see some of the old prior uh, uh, published research that I did back when I was doing more empirical uh, peer uh, uh, review journal stuff. So that's all on the line, graymattersintl.com, G-R-E-Y-M-A-T-T-E-R-S-I-N-T-L.com. Whole bunch of great thought leadership video clips there too. Um, and yeah, and I'm very, very good. And you know this, Kevin, too, you know, yep. reach out, ask questions. Sure. And I'm a big, you know, because I'm in planes a lot, email's the best. Email is kevin at kevinflemingphd.com, K-E-V-I-N at K-E-V-I-N-F-L-E-M-I-N-G-P-H-D.com. I love a good conversation. Uh, just you're interested in something, shoot me a line. And, you know, whether we're fit or not, who cares? If I can help you with something, I'm more than glad to. Sure. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye. You got it. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>